Welcome to a PEDRA publication presentation. We are providing this presentation in audio format for the convenience of listening on the go. If you'd like to view the video version of this presentation, you have two options. You can follow the link to join and view in the PEDRA mobile app or follow the link to YouTube. Both are provided in the description of this podcast. Don't miss any of our educational content make sure to like and subscribe to the podcast channel as well as our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening. Hi friends, my name is Marcus Bose. I am an associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Washington School of Medicine and an attending dermatologist at Seattle Children's Hospital. And I appreciate you spending some time with me today um, to learn more about our study that was recently published in Pediatric Dermatology, the influence of gender and sexual identity on adolescent skin health. Before I um, get too far afield, I did want to take a moment to make a land acknowledgement. Um, I'd like to acknowledge that I work and live on the traditional land of the first people of Seattle, the Duwamish people, past and present, and I honor with gratitude the land itself and the Duwamish tribe. Um, I'd also like to give a big shout out to the Pediatric um, Dermatology Research Alliance and the Society for Pediatric Dermatology who um, helped fund this study uh, via an SPD pilot grant. Um, I appreciate the, the funding again for the study and also their support uh, for my career, for my career um, throughout its entirety. All right. So before I launch into the study, I think it's important just to ground us all in the space um, that we're discussing. And, um, you know, the, the most important thing for me is helping us all to understand who is the population that we're serving. So in the United States, um, over 8 million um, adults identify as lesbian, gay, or bisexual. And then another 1.4 million adults identify as transgender. Um, in addition to this, there's about 19 million people, um, or adults at least, who report ever having engaged in same-sex sexual behaviors. So even if someone doesn't identify as gay or bisexual um, or something out of the, um, the heterosexual category, it's still important to understand that some activities sometimes put them um, at increased risk or likelihood for certain dermatologic conditions. With respect to children and their development, um, the concept of gender identity typically um, starts to occur between two to four years of age, uh, but transgender children typically identify as such around 13 years of age on average. Um, in contrast, sexuality is a bit more fluid, so someone's sexual orientation um, can, um, can change with time, and often children self-identify as gay or bisexual at about 15 to 16 years of age. And um, it's important to recognize, too, that about 8% of um, high school children um, identify as gay um, or bisexual, as opposed to the 3.5% of adults. And whether that's a change um, or a fluidity in someone's sexual orientation or just sort of a greater acceptance of um, uh, sexual, uh, sexual orientations that differ from the sort of traditional heterosexual norm, um, it's not entirely clear, um, but hopefully will be with more time. The other thing that's important to recognize is that there's a substantial number of barriers to care for um, individuals who identify as a sexual or gender minority, or you may see this abbreviation LGBTQIA2S+, and that stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer or questioning, intersex, asexual, or two-spirit. Um, and as I mentioned, there are a number of barriers to medical care um, for individuals um, who identify as such. And the first one is just one of availability. So the thing that we want to make sure is that for anyone who um, who is seeking care, that there's a workforce that can treat um, 
their specific concerns and then it's within a reasonable proximity um, and can provide all the services necessary um, to this population. In addition, the services should be accessible. So are these services for LGBTQ um, kids in an area where they live? Can they get there effectively on their own um, if they de desire confidentiality or privacy? Um, are there insurance barriers that we need to be considering? Um, are there hours of operation? It's difficult for children to um, to get medical care without skipping school or missing school. Um, so are nighttime hours appropriate and does it make the, um, the care um, that can be provided more accessible to these children? Um, acceptability is also a really important issue. So um, if a, a sexual or gender minority child um, goes for medical care, ideally that place is going to be LGBTQIA friendly. Um, the education is gonna be tailored to LGBTQ specific needs. There's gonna be bathrooms that are unisex or available for transgender children. Care will be confidential, respectful, humble. These are all really important um, aspects of medical care. because so we don't just want to have care available, but we want it to be holistic and nurturing and supportive um, for the, the individuals who come and seek our care. Um, is the care equitable? Are all the people gonna get the same level of care when they come to, to seek our services? Um, does this make a difference whether they are a um, sexual minority versus a gender minority? Are there socioeconomic considerations that we need to be thinking about? Are there racial disparities in the care that we're providing? Um, so these are really important issues that um, are important to, to consider and really wanna make sure that when we're providing services and doing our best to provide the dermatologic care for um, sexual and gender minority children that we're really taking into account the entirety of the individual and recognizing all their needs, um, not just those related to their sexual orientation or their gender identity. Some people have proposed that gender clinics may be um, a useful way to address many of the obstacles facing um, the transgender children when they're seeking out care. Um, and gender clinics are certainly helpful. Um, it's often a combination of an endocrinologist or an adolescent medicine specialist who specializes in transgender care, as, long, um, as well as mental health services or psychiatric services. From a dermatologic perspective, they may not be quite the answer that we hope for because often dermatology is not embedded directly into these clinics. And so um, if uh, dermatologic care is needed, then oftentimes these gender clinics still have to refer out to dermatology providers. And then finally, just one important thing for all of us to constantly be thinking about is our own implicit bias. So implicit biases um, encompass favorable and unfavorable assessments that are activated involuntarily um, without our sort of awareness or even intentional control. So it's really important for us to be aware of these types of biases and check them at the door. So for instance, as a gay man myself, um, I've had uh, primary care providers who've assumed that I um, have multiple um, sex partners and I may um, practice unsafe sex. Um, that's an implicit bias. And so we need to really be thinking about those types of things when we engage with our patients. And again, let them tell their stories um, and help us to, to understand who they are and support them appropriately. Um, one way that we decrease implicit bias is um, through educating ourselves and also having more frequent interactions with um, patients in the LGBTQ community. So um, I really appreciate you being here because hopefully this is one more access point to help reduce our own implicit biases. All right, so what is the point of our study? Um, the big question is, what do LGBTQIA2S children need from dermatologists? Um, I would direct you to um, two JAD CME articles from 2019 uh, by um, Dr. Howard Young and colleagues looking at the dermatologic needs of um, 
uh, SGM communities as a whole, this really focused more on adults. And there's not a whole lot in the medical literature about what the dermatologic needs of sexual and gender minority children are. So that was really kind of the, the starting point for, for us. We wanted to ask what do patients need from us um, instead of just assuming that we know what they need? And so the study aims um, can really be divided into two different parts. Um, the first is to describe the nature and frequency of skin conditions in SGM youth relative to their cisgender and heterosexual peers, and then to explore adolescents' attitudes toward their own skin health and accessing dermatologic care. So our study design is as follows. Um, so at Seattle Children's, we have adolescent medicine clinics and we also have gender clinics, which are a subspecialty within adolescent medicine. And this is where we recruited um, our study participants. So any um, child aged 13 to 21 years seen within these clinics was invited to participate in this questionnaire study. And the questionnaire occupied four different domains, demographic characteristics, presence of diagnosed skin conditions, hormone therapy use, and then the participants' views of how their gender identity and sexual orientation influence their skincare practices. Um, of the 187 participants who were approached, 126 completed the questionnaire, and then 118 um, fully um, filled out all of the necessary information, including their sexual orientation and gender identity information, which was essential for the, the, the basis of this study. Um, the questionnaire was composed of both open and closed-ended questions. Um, and then uh, finally, data was evaluated via statistical methods. And for questions where we had a, an open-ended follow-up, so for instance, we asked, does your sexual orientation influence how you feel or care for your skin? And if yes, then how? Um, if there were responses where there was a statistically significant difference um, in the prompting question, if yes, um, and then we did an exploratory thematic sub-analysis of the open-ended responses to that question. All right, so this is our study population. Um, we recruited 52 cisgender and 66 gender minority, which are defined as transgender or non-binary youth. Um, since um, gender identity and sexual orientation um, are related uh, concepts or aspects of an individual's identity, but they're not, they don't necessarily always accord one-to-one. -one. Um, it's important to recognize there's a whole variety of sexual orientations represented in our study as well. So we had 40 heterosexual, 78 sexual minority um, children. Um, and sexual minority, it was again defined as gay, lesbian, bisexual, pansexual, asexual, and questioning for queer or other, um, but we had no, no one who responded as other in our study. Um, as far as the racial demographics of our study, our study was predominantly white. And um, age-wise, um, children were essentially all about the same age, but those um, individuals who identified as transgender females and non-binary were slightly older at around 17 years of age on average, where um, those children who fell into other um, categories were primarily um, late 15 years, 16 years of age. All right. So the first question that we asked is, are there differences in the instance of different skin diseases between sexual and gender minority youth and their cisgender heterosexual peers? Um, and what we found is that there's really no difference in the prevalence of skin conditions, including acne, um, but also acanthosis nigricans, psoriasis, um, contact dermatitis, atopic dermatitis, um, injection site reactions, and again, other was um, given as an option for different um, uh, cutaneous conditions uh, requiring treatment. We found that there's really no difference in the prevalence of these uh, skin conditions amongst different groups. Um, the one thing that we did find is that atopic dermatitis was more common in heterosexual adolescents, but it's unclear um, the, the relevance of this and um, that's something that probably requires a bit more study in the future.
Um, we did find that on a sub-analysis, when we compared transgender males who are using masculinizing hormone therapy versus those that did not, um, the acne was much more common within this group, which is consistent with um, studies that have been done elsewhere. Um, and as I mentioned, no difference in the prevalence of skin conditions based on sexual orientation alone. All right, then we asked, does your sexual orientation or gender identity influence how you personally feel about and take care of your skin? Um, and what you can see here, so the first part of this table is um, based on gender identity. And we find that there was a statistically significant difference in um, how people feel or take care of their skin uh, based on their uh, gender identity. So cisgender females, transgender males, transgender females, and non-binary individuals all um, felt that their gender identity really influenced how they took care of their skin. Um, again, in contrast, when we asked this question in regard to sex sexual orientation, um, there was really no difference um, amongst these different groups. Um, it didn't appear that sexual orientation really influenced how individuals felt about or took care of their skin. So on thematic sub-analysis, you know, we asked these individuals, how does your gender influence um, how you feel about and take care of your skin? And the answers that we got, um, some were expected and others were surprising. So what we found was that among cisgender females and transgender females, there was definitely a, um, a societal pressure um, that influenced how they felt and cared for their skin. So both transgender and cisgender females expressed feeling heightened expectations to achieve this ideal of soft, supple, clear, dewy skin um, that required them to spend more time on their skincare regimen and often in turn influence their mood. And you can see that here in these two quotes um, that we have um, from study participants. The first one says, I feel a greater pressure to keep my skin clear, clean and clear based on how it looks, it impacts how I view myself and how I feel. If my skin is more blotchy and I have acne, I feel worse about myself. Um, this is from a 15 year old cisgender female. Um, similarly, this quote from a 16 year old transgender female states, girls and women are expected by society to take better care of their appearance than men to fit society's ideal standard. So again, this idea that, that social pressures are really influencing how um, females uh, tend to and um, feel about their skin. The um, answers from transgender males were a bit more varied. Um, and with them, there was a, a number of different sort of perspectives on, um, and how their um, gender identity influenced how they took care of their skin. So one common refrain was that among transgender males on masculinizing hormone therapy is that they had more acne. And so they had to be a little bit more diligent in taking care of their acne. However, there was a subset of, of um, transgender males who saw acne as sort of a quote unquote rite of passage and something that you know really proved to them that they were masculine or it's sort of like real time um, confirmation that they were masculinizing, that they were, um, appearing with their internalized sense of, of gender. Um, that was seen as a positive thing. Um, but you can see a bit of the conflict here. We have first um, from a transgender male, um, 19 years old, who states, ever since starting hormones, my acne got worse. So I need to start using face wash and got prescribed an acne cream. Um, and a, a bit more of a nuanced response says, I feel weird buying skincare products. It's still ingrained in our society that men don't or shouldn't take care of their bodies and their skin. I like to think my masculinity isn't that fragile, but it's hard to feel like other people aren't judging me. I'm also on testosterone and I get a whole lot of acne. And in a weird way, I see it as a sort of rite of passage. In contrast to these, there um, were a number of um, transgender males who also um, 
express feeling dysphoria because they had to take care of their skin. So um, you can see this one uh, quote from a 17 year old um, transgender male says, I don't take as many showers as I should because of dysphoria. Or this another um, participant stated, I don't always do skincare because it's seen as, as a traditionally feminine thing and it can make me dysphoric. So it's just really important to understand too that there are ideals of society that um, we've all internalized and this idea that taking care of the taking care of your skin is more of a feminine activity can really have profound implications um, for uh, transgender male patients uh, specifically. But again, these societal expectations are pervasive among all all um, adolescents and really influences how they feel about their skin and in turn how they take care of it. Um, we also asked, would you prefer would you prefer care from a dermatologist who is a sexual or gender minority? And we asked this question because previous studies um, in the medical literature showed that children, um, SGM children in general, didn't really have a strong preference for whether their provider also identified as such, um, and really spoke more towards having a educated, a compassionate, a knowledgeable provider um, who, you know, was educated and can provide them the, the care in a culturally competent way. Um, but in our study, we actually found that children who identified as sexual minorities um, were, would prefer to have a SGM dermatologist and in fact would be more likely to seek care um, from uh, an SGM dermatologist. So this um, was done on a scale from one to 100. Um, one indicated that subjects definitely did not want a provider who was SGM. 100 was that they absolutely want a provider who's SGM and 50 is right in the middle where they were indifferent to the um, sexual orientation or gender identity of their dermatologic provider. Um, and what you can see here is that among um, heterosexual children, they were right around that 50 mark. So it seemed, um, you know, rather indifferent to the um, identity of their provider, but sexual minority children had a stronger preference for someone who is also SGM. And this played out as well in um, amongst um, transgender and non-binary children. So when we grouped this based on gender identity, we found that cisgender males and females, again, didn't really have much of a preference um, or didn't, wouldn't actually seek out um, someone who is SGM versus not. Um, but for transgender males, transgender females, and non-binary children, there was a strong preference um, for a provider who is SGM, and they would be more likely to seek the care of someone who identified as SGM. Um, and, you know, among the thematic sub-analyses that we did, um, reasons that we found for the preference for someone who is SGM um, by SGM children was that it was the expectation that a provider who is also a sexual or gender minority would be more respectful to them, would be more knowledgeable about their specific needs, and better able to create a safe and comfortable space um, for SGM patients. Um, and it was thought that that would in turn engender more trust and comfort with providers um, and allow patients to, to better connect with them. Um, and one reason that we hypothesize that this may be a bigger issue within dermatology compared to any sort of primary care provider is that the skin exam is very intimate. And so having someone who really understands the ins and outs of, um, you know, sexual and gender minority care um, is really important um, from that aspect, just because the exam itself is so, um, so intimate. All right, we also asked um, some questions about tanning. Um, in adults, um, it's known that um, sexual minority men are more likely to engage in um, risky tanning um, behavior, including use of indoor tanning boots. And we wondered whether this might be the same in children as well. Um, but we didn't find the same thing in our population, at least. Um, here, what we found was that cisgender males and females were more likely um, to engage in tanning behavior um, than, than their transgender or non-binary counterparts. Um, but there was really no difference in tanning behavior by 
based on sexual orientation. Um, you know, what we take from that is that it's just still really important to ask all children, like, why do you tan? Do you tan? Um, in our study, what we found was that um, the perception that tan skin was more attractive was the motivation for individuals to tan. Um, so really kind of getting at, at that heart of um, that sort of appearance look, the social expectations that are again, driving these behaviors is really important. And then of course, um, you know, counseling about some protecting behaviors and the avoidance of skin cancer um, is part of our job and something that's really important in this age group as well. All right, what are the limitations of the study? Um, it's self-reported data, and in the big scheme of things, the sample size was relatively small. Um, there may be limited, limited genera, generalizability, <laughs> given that our study participants were of a narrow racial and ethnic diversity. I will point out that um, the racial and ethnic composition of our study population was representative of King County, where Seattle Children's Hospital is located, um, but this still may not be applicable to the broader population. And again, our um, Medical Center is a tertiary adolescent medicine and gender clinic, um, and it's a progressive urban area. So whether all of these views would um, translate to other um, locales um, in the United States or worldwide is not um, entirely clear. Um, and then finally, there were some um, differences in um, in ages, um, as I pointed out earlier, among the demographics, um, transgender females and non-binary non individuals were slightly older um, than other study population or other populations within our study. And so it is important to recognize that some of these free response answers um, may have also been influenced somewhat by respondents' um, age, developmental stage, or maturity. So what are the conclusions? Um, I think uh, it's very clear from our study that gender identity influences how adolescents feel about and care for their skin. Um, and I think it's really important for us to take that time to connect with our um, patients, whether they identify as a sexual or gender minority um, or not, um, and really inquire with them about how their identities influence how they view their skin um, and allow that to guide our counseling and then demonstrate holistic support, which is especially important for um, SGM children. Um, and then, you know, it's clear from our study that SGM adolescents um, would benefit from efforts to connect them to SGM dermatologists. Um, clearly there's a desire for that connection um, for, you know, hopefully creating a um, warm and safe space and maybe seeing, um, you know, someone who is like them, um, you know, in a position of, you know, sort of relative power or authority um, and how meaningful that can be as an example for um, SGM um, children growing up today. Um, as far as next directions, um, it would be great to um, see if our results were could be reproduced um, in a larger study across multiple sites um, across the United States in both more urban um, and more rural environments. Um, and then getting a, a larger um, population of patients um, of different ages um, so that we can control for things like developmental um, stage in our, um, in our responses. So um, that, is that. Um, thank you again for spending some of your day with me. Um, and uh, many thanks again to, to Pedra and the SPD for all they did to support the study uh, and my career. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Bye.